at the Hotel Mar-a-Lago. You can check out anytime you'd like, but (laughs) (laughs) you can never leave. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Stuslow. This is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's outstanding panel, my dear friend, senior advisor at the California Latino Economic Institute, my fellow co-founder of the Lincoln Project. He also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at USC. Mike Madrid, good morning. How are you doing? Good morning. Finally recovering from most of the post-election analysis, so I'm feeling good. Well, you're doing better than I am. (laughs) Also, returning to the roundup, Lucy Caldwell. Lucy is a veteran political strategist, tech founder, and former senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute. Lucy, as always, it's wonderful to see you. How are you this morning? It's so good to see you both. I'm recording this from my hometown, and it was another beautiful morning to wake up in Katie Hobbs country. (laughs) (laughs) Never thought you'd be saying that, did you? I know. On this week's Roundup, we will discuss Donald Trump's announcement that he's running for president for a third time. We'll also break down the infighting shaping congressional leadership races. And then we'll take a look at the Russian war in Ukraine and Ann Applebaum's piece in The Atlantic about why the Russian empire must die. Finally, for our Politicology Plus subscribers, we're going to discuss America's guru problem. If you want to pull up a chair and join us for that, a Politicology Plus subscription gets you the private and ad-free version of the show with additional episodes that aren't on the public version. There are two ways to get it. Option one is to sign up directly with us at politicology.com slash plus, and that gets you a link you can use to any major podcast player. Option two, if you only listen to the podcast in the Apple Podcast app, you can navigate to the Politicology show there and tap the button that says try free. We'll dig in right after this. So the thing we all, and by we all, I mean like half the country have been dreading has finally happened. On Tuesday night, Donald Trump announced his third presidential campaign. The announcement came a week after Trump endorsed candidates performed terribly in the midterm elections and the sharks circling Mar-a-Lago smelled blood in the water. Uh, Republicans have been far more forthright than usual, blaming Trump for their underperformance last week and potential rivals have been openly considering challenging Trump for the nomination. We are recording less than 48 hours after the announcement. This will come out less than 72 hours after the announcement. And I have to tell you guys, I'm already exhausted. Like I watched this announcement uh, on TV before the networks cut away from it for being boring. And something changed for me in the air. And like, as soon as I saw him say this, like, okay, I'm running for, it was like, I just, please, I don't want to do this again. That's how I felt. I don't, I don't want to do this again. And I know we've been talking about this as an inevitability, or I have been, we've known this was coming. But now that he's done it, it's like, oh, here we go again. And we have to deal with this for the next two years, at least. And, and he's right now the only person running announced, filed for president right now. The only person, including on the Democratic side. Uh, So before we dive in, I just want to know, given everything that we three collectively have been through over the last several years, um, how are you feeling about this? Lucy? Well, I don't care that he's running for re-election. It really helped bring into focus for me how much I hope the Republican Party is burned to the ground, full stop not interested in reforming the Republican Party. I hope it goes away. I will keep working around the margins however I can to offset the fact that it's not going away fast enough, which is the biggest threat to our democracy, in my opinion. The thing that really irritates me about the news this week and in the last couple of weeks is that we have to do this bogus song and dance again, where we're like, look, maybe though we're now on the cusp. Maybe Republicans are now reforming themselves from within because a couple of mega donors said they don't want Trump to win. And gosh, the New York Post wrote some mean headlines about him. And, you know, even some of the Fox News hosts are saying, 
hold off. So gosh, this could be a real tide turn. It's not. It is not a tide turn, in my opinion. And all of those people who right now are trying to optimize election outcomes and are hoping instead that the the sort of great white knight Ron DeSantis will save them, all of them are still going to be happy to support Donald Trump in 2024 when he's the eventual Republican nominee, just like they were all happy to support him in 2016, even though when he came on the scene, they were saying, oh, not so psyched about this, just like they were all happy to get behind him in 2020. So I find, for example, the position of National Review or other institutional players saying, we're not into this, whatever, just kind of irritating because they're all eventually going to come back around to him. And there's a piece of this that I think is super important to understand, which is the train has left the station in particular ways that are not immediately evident. And one of those ways is in just thinking about the the mechanics of running for president. Running for president means navigating 50 state elections and 50 state primaries. And navigating the primaries is dependent on maneuvering through state parties. And something that the Trump team did incredibly effectively after 2016 is that they made sure to turn over virtually all state party chairs to MAGA to be Trump loyalists. And so they have the power to do all kinds of stuff. They have the power to make it hard for other candidates to run. They have the power in some states to cancel primaries, which is literally a thing that they did in 2020. And they also, in general, we have to know where his base is. His base is with Trump. And even in the wake of their lack of a big red wave last week, the attitude among many of those state party people has just been that we were not MAGA enough and we need to double down on MAGA. And so you're actually seeing in several battleground states, for example, in the state of Michigan, where Democrats had a really, really great night, you see that the should-be disgraced former Republican attorney general candidate, Matt DiPerno, has now put his thrown his hat in to become the next Republican Party of Michigan chair. Tudor Dixon, another one, right? And we're going to see this all around the country. So sorry for the rant, but to me, this is mostly irritating, <laughs> I would yeah. say. Yeah, irritating. I definitely feel that. Mike, how do you feel? You know, the, the week has sort of been a range of emotions. And I, I think after the midterms, I was trying to figure out how I felt. And I think for the first time, I had to acknowledge that I felt something that I had not felt in many, many years, which was uh, relief. Uh, and the reason why is when I'm looking through the data, it's pretty clear that the electorate on Tuesday was older, whiter, and more Republican than it was in both 2020 and 2018. And what that means is a very significant slice of the Republican electorate said, we've had enough. As bad as the economy is, as much as they don't like Joe Biden and Joe Biden's policies and Joe Biden's administration and the, the direction of the country, they're, they're, they said, we're, we're voting for the Democrat. And I'm, I'm talking you know, double Bannon line numbers, like, like significant incursions. And so then, you know, fast forward 48 hours, 72 hours to this announcement, and, and, and you're right, there's this sort of exhaustion. Look, this was the worst presidential announcement speech I think I've ever seen, not, not because of the substance of it, because I, I didn't really listen to much of the substance. It got so boring, but I couldn't figure out what they were trying to do. They went to Mar-a-Lago and set up this, you know, palatial background with you know the 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 the, the gold lilt and the and the and the and the American flags in the background and 95% of what he did was was off the teleprompter and and what that tells me the only conclusion i could come to is they're trying to make this guy look presidential which is not his strong suit <laughs> right and and so it 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 really landed incredibly flat and at a time when the Republican base and the MAGA crowd needed a cheerleader and a rally to be, to, you know, to lie to him again and say, like, you know, it's only because I wasn't on the ballot. If my name had been on the ballot that we would have won, you know, everywhere, California, we would have won in a landslide kind of bullshit. 
that's what they needed. That's what they wanted. That's what the crowd was there for. And they got none of that. And it, it was just, it was, it was off. It was flat. It was, it was, uh, it was annoying. It was boring. And in the, and in, in the heels of what happened in the midterms, I, you know, look, we've all, we've all said at some point, this guy's done and I'm not saying he's done, but I'm saying he's incredibly weak right now. And I, I think I tweeted out, he's like a wounded gazelle on the plains of the Serengeti, right? It's like the, 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 the jackals are circling on this guy. And that doesn't mean that they're going to take him out. I think Lucy's right. I think he has a strong command over the Republican base, but I think it's weaker by a pretty considerable margin than it's ever been. Even after Jan six, I don't think it's, I don't think he's in a strong position. And remember, he needs to have complete dominance of the party to remain relevant here. And the party has figured out that it can't win with him and it can't win without him. Like he has lost – Trumpism has been a loser. People have been saying, oh, three out of the four elections, you know, we've lost with him. No, you've lost four out of four elections with this guy. 2016, you lost the popular vote. 2018, you lost the House by a historic margin. 2020, you lost again, at least at the top of the ticket where it mattered. And 2022 – when you should have had a huge year, nothing, like zero, like nothing. And to me, in my estimation, it's like even, even the most diehard loyalists who are going to vote Republican um, regardless, the hand-wringing, the consternation, the internal battles, and they are more significant. McConnell was reelected, but 10 very vocal senators were against him. McCarthy's not quite there yet. These are very significant signs of a party whose leadership is really, really in jeopardy. Will they get it together? Most certainly. Will they pull back, you know, and, and, and coalesce the base? Yeah, most of them, but they don't need most of them. They need all of them. They need all of them. And they also need a significant break amongst independents. They haven't gotten that ever, except for 2016. Late breaks against Hillary Clinton. That was the last time independents moved in their direction. So look, am I fatigued by this? Yeah. Do I want to do this again? No. But do I believe that? The anti-Trump, anti-Republican forces are in a better position than they have been since 2016. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't. It doesn't mean they're gonna. It's over. Like tr- Trumpism is never gonna go away. Even with this guy, you know, he's gonna he's gonna go down with his 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 fingers on the chalkboard, drag being dragged out. Like he he's not gonna leave. The guy tried to overthrow the federal government to stay in the White House. What makes you think he's not gonna try to stay in power with the Republican Party and relevant? He's going to, but that doesn't mean he's gonna get there. And that's that ugliness in the struggle, I think, is where there's a huge leverage point for people that are opposed to Republicans and Republicanism broadly, because folks, the Republicans showed up on tw- in, on Tuesday night. And that's one of the things, once the fog of war clears and lifts, there were more Republican voters that showed up than Democrats. And yeah. you can parse and surprise the, a lot of people, yeah, including me. Including me. You can yeah. parse around the edges and you can, you know, make excuses about House candidates that weren't being run or whatever. And uh, uh, who cares? Uh, who cares? <laughs> like, that doesn't matter. Uh, the, the math is not that important. And if I'm saying that, it's, uh, yeah, I, I just don't see how that matters. Um, the biggest data point is not that the youth of America saved us or Generation Z saved us or there was a Latino file. None of that is – I don't think it's true, but none of it matters. The most important data point is a lot of Republicans showed up and a lot of Republicans voted against Trumpism. That is a big, big moment, and there is a allow, allowance for relief, but there's also allowance for a way forward too. It's a big moment and it's a big message. And as you said, boring was, uh, was, you know, a lot of people panned the speech as boring. Um, a lot of the pundits panned. It was so boring, in fact, that the New York Times devoted almost its entire opinion section to the announcement on Wednesday. Like, if you, if you look around, it was like everybody just couldn't wait to write how boring it was. And now there, it's like so many column inches were spent talking about how boring Donald Trump's speech was. And so, Lucy, one of the things I've Love to hear your thoughts on is this pivot among the Rupert Murdoch empire uh, uh, in its posture toward both Fox News, the New York Post, the posture toward Donald Trump now. Um, it, the Post's uh, front page is, you know, making headlines on its own because of how scathing it was. Florida man makes announcements for president, whatever it is. Um, just really brutal. Um, the message that Mike is talking about seems to have been heard. By, uh, by at least the right-wing media empire, or Rupert's media empire anyway. Um, and we've talked, about, we've talked about Fox News a lot before. How, how, how do you read that, and how do you read the implications of their pivot? 
I think that it is a brief moment in time where they are trying to test the effectiveness or test the boundaries of trying to provide other options in the form of other Republicans or other paths forward to uh, their audiences. And I think that they're testing where their audiences, where their consumer bases of the folks who are reading and writing or watching those shows. Uh, And again, I just don't think that it is going to extend to Fox News is not about to become a never Trump channel. I think (laughs) that the boringness of the announcement is is interesting. I mean, one of two, two weird little facts, details of the announcement. One, a whole bunch of people tried to leave during and were locked inside the room, <laughs> which is like, like a sort of like Jean-Paul Sartre reimagined in the Trump era, right? <laughs> Hell is being trapped in Mar-a-Lago in a Mar-a-Lago ballroom, listening to Trump announce he's running again. With the Hotel Mar-a-Lago. The other- <laughs> what, what did I do to deserve this? <laughs> yeah, actually. Yeah, you can check exactly. out anytime you'd like. But. Hell is, hell is other leave. Trump supporters. <laughs> also, that uh, Trump, that his walk-on song was from Les Mis. Like he, who knows what the hell that is about? Because the guy also previously was all in on YMCA, but he clearly thinks he's... <laughs> What a range! What a range! It's 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 incredible. I either tr- either Donald Trump is not really like a lyrics guy, which seems likely, but it's more fun to imagine that he just sees himself in all of these songs, right? Um, so he's decided to make. I mean, it shows just how wacko these people are—not just Trump, but the people who are still close to him, the kind of Jason Millers of the world—that they believe that a song that that reflects the current struggle for them and there is is like something uh, reminiscent of the French Revolution. What? What? (laughs) But I do think that in terms of the, I think that you can't really fully talk about the Trump announcement without talking about it in the backdrop of the Georgia special or the Georgia Senate race, the Georgia runoff. Because I think that a lot of what happened in the last week is Trump's announcement and and some of his posture around the announcement is because it's I, I think that the midterms made him more more eager to get in there, right? And hearing things like, you know what, why don't you not come to Georgia <laughs> and yeah. campaign? Let's have Ron DeSantis cover that. And actually, also, if you could not uh not announce until after the Georgia runoff, that'd be great. That all made him so much more likely to go all in. But I think that it that also may be part of why some of his language was tempered, right? Like my priorities are going to be like um, put a you know mission to Mars, which I think, by the way, we should just encourage Trump to man that mission to Mars. I think that could solve a ton of problems. Um, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna kill drug dealers, right? Like, and I'm gonna I'm gonna um, and I'm also gonna institute a lifetime ban on revolving door lobbying practices. It it was very vanilla, but I think that there was an idea that if we could just keep him off of the really uh, divisive topics for the purposes of that speech, that it would would help uh, lessen damage that this does to other parts of, of like live Republican electoral situations like Georgia. So I think that will last mm, approximately three more weeks. And then it's just going to be just going to be sort of like all bets are off. And that's not just a Trump thing. That is just like the business of managing candidates, too, uh, which is that they all think that they're brilliant and they're all people running for office. So on some level, they're all sort of sick and twisted megalomaniacs. Um, But I think that some of the boringness of Trump probably was like the the compromise, (laughs) so to speak. Well, let's start the clock and see if uh, see if they begin pivoting in a few weeks, just like they did after January 6th. But anyway. On Wednesday, news outlets called the 218th House race for Republicans. So Republicans will take back control of the House. Uh, projections are 221R versus 214D as of right now. 
Uh, for reference, on election day, the prediction was 232R, 203D. Um, after their underwhelming performance in the midterms, uh, so members of the Republican House caucus questioned whether Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy should become Speaker of the House in January. McCarthy did win the Republican nomination for Speaker, as you mentioned, uh, Mike, resoundingly in their leadership elections last week. But a challenge from McCarthy's right, mounted by Arizona Rep. Andy Biggs was able to garner more than two dozen votes against McCarthy. He won 188 to 31, but would need to get at least 218 votes in January to secure the role of Speaker. Um, so, Mike, you touched on this a little bit earlier, but how has your thinking on whether McCarthy will be Speaker uh, changed over the last week? Look, I think there's a long ways to go till January. My strong sense is he will probably be able to put the votes together. Um, but you know, the, the, the majority for Kevin McCarthy is going to be, it sounds like exactly the same as it is for Nancy Pelosi on the Democratic side right now. These are two very different people, with two very different governing styles and two very different abilities. And two very different caucuses. Uh, and most importantly, two very different caucuses. And as this vote was coming together, not only did Biggs, you know, from the Freedom Caucus, you know, raise his hand and say, I'll, I'll take a run at him. But you know, you also had some a couple of of last minute maneuverings from from Don Bacon in Nebraska on the left, who basically said, if 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 you guys don't put if the conservatives don't put it together, I'll caucus with some other people and put a Democrat in there. Which um, you know, and, and I think a lot of Washington insiders were basically saying, oh, that was a smart move. That's a you know, that's how you're going to enforce discipline. I think that's an incredible sign of weakness. <laughs> Whenever you have any caucus member willing to say, I will vote with the other party to ensure some sort of majority position or leadership role, that's a sign of weakness. That is not a sign of strength. I don't care under what circumstances it is, and especially if it's coming from the quote unquote moderate and or left flank. And if you've got the right flank saying, we're not with you, and the left flank saying, we'll vote for the Democrats to make sure that you're there, you're not in a strong position. I don't care how you spin that. I don't care what Washington reporters or insiders or gossip columnists say. You're in trouble, girl, and you better start paying attention because you're not on steady, steady ground. And I think that's where Kevin's at. Do I think he'll probably put the votes together for speaker? I do. Do I think the chance of him not being speaker in four months is high? I do. Why? Not just because of the of the unease and the unholiness of of this of this coalition, but Marjorie Taylor Greene told us a lot, right? She came back out of that meeting with Kevin McCarthy. She says, "I'm with him," and she gives the answer by saying, "All that matters is subpoena power. That's all that matters." Marjorie Taylor Greene will probably get committee assignments. She doesn't care about committee assignments. She's not there to do the work. She's there to prosecute a case against. Every Democrat that they they need to exact vengeance from, including Hunter Biden, Joe Biden, Merrick Garland, Dr. Fauci, you know, wh whoever, Barack Obama, they'll probably pull up Michelle Obama, like bring them all up. Let's <laughs> let's put them on the stand. Right? Name your boogeyman. Yeah, name yeah. them. And so that's that's what we're in for. That's what's going to happen. And Kevin McCarthy cannot say no. As much as the the, the crazy show has come to town. That was the deal that he cut, is you can have your crazy show as long as I can be the ringleader of the circus, and I just don't know how long that circus lasts because the tenuousness of this coalition is not serious. For Nancy Pelosi, it was hard with a squad that was empowered in a, in a, in a party base that is genuinely ideologically split. Uh, that's difficult. She did a masterful job. For Kevin McCarthy, it's very different. It's not just an ideological split. Those two are there. But there's also this QAnon element that this 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 Marjorie Taylor Greene caucus that is there that that does not care about the philosophy of governance. It doesn't care about smaller government and free market to whatever the Republican Party used to stand for. It cares about the performative nature of power itself. And even then, you don't have Matt Gates on board, right? Who's still like, uh, uh, no, I'm not going with Kevin. And you start, when you've lost Matt Gates. And he's and he's fighting with MTG now. Uh, exactly. That's my exactly like the, the, the performance the perform like Laura Loomer is now going against Marjorie Taylor Greene and Diamond and Silk are like fighting each other. It's like none, this isn't serious governance. It's not like a debate of ideas. It's not like you went up on a tax vote. How dare you, right? Like that was the 80s, 90s Republican. Now it's like you didn't bend the knee to Donald Trump fast enough. You should have been at Mar-a-Lago. We had a seat for you and you weren't there. So you know what? You're a rhino. You're with McConnell. Like, like you're bad. And it's like, what the hell is going on? And you can't. Also, 
Go, no, go McCarthy ahead. I, I'm done on this diatribe. Too, McCarthy is none too smart. I know, I know, you know, Mike goes way back with him. So, so Mike can never say this, but I can say it. Kevin McCarthy is a moron. So that's another <laughs> big piece of this. That's another big piece of this. America's Nona chess master, chess master, right? <laughs> Kevin McCarthy sorted Starburst for Donald Trump, right? So that's sort of the the frame. <laughs> But there's a little piece of inside baseball that I don't think has been covered that much that is interesting, which is that under Pelosi's rules, the Pelosi era, you basically you vote for House Speaker once a session, once a term. Right. There's a possibility, but that's not always the case. And that could change. And 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 part of the vote and kind of negotiation over who becomes House Speaker couldn't it could include orienting themselves around the idea that, you know, you could lose it at any time and we could see ourselves get into like a kind of like a snap election style scenario. And it's hard for me to imagine that the Freedom Caucus guys are are not only going to roll and agree to um, agree to uh, McCarthy. They may end up becoming resigned to the fact that McCarthy is going to be speaker, but I don't see them becoming resigned to McCarthy being speaker for two years with no chance of being thrown out if they don't like him. And so then you think about people who are on the fringes, like the kinds of people who uh, often like get with the program, but want to reserve the right to, uh, you know, maybe pull back, like say a Chip Roy from Texas, right? That kind of person. You could really see that part of the chaos of all of this could be that they're like holding votes for speaker all the time. I mean, I think it's going to be, I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to it. This is such a good outcome because we were never facing down. It's so good. We were never facing down. Like we were never in reach of a scenario in which Democrats retained strong majorities or, uh, you know, where there was suddenly going to be great lawmaking happening and reforms that people wanted to get through. You now have a Senate that's looking increasingly reasonable, Democrats may even grow their strength there a little bit. That dynamic has totally changed. So we're not in a risk of uh, a a Republican-controlled Congress writ large that is just, like, causing chaos. But Republicans in the House are going to act like lunatics for the next few years. And that electorally is really good for Democrats because it gives them something to run against in 2024. It's going to be this clown show rather than being in this situation that they were going into this cycle, which was like, inflation's your fault. (laughs) Like gas prices are your fault. Everything is your fault. They have something to run against. Uh, let's touch on the Senate leadership for a minute since you, since you brought up a Senate that's looking increasingly reasonable. We now know, uh, well, more than we did last time we talked to you, which is that Democrats are going to retain control in the Senate now that Senator Catherine Cortez Masto has eked out a razor thin victory in Nevada, my home state, which was shocking to see, um, and, and amazing, uh, how much Nevada has changed. Uh, which means that this uh, Senate runoff in Georgia is not going to be the battle for control. Um, it will be very important, obviously, but uh, but not battle for control. So on Tuesday, Florida Senator uh, and now outgoing NRSC Chair Rick Scott announced that he would challenge Republican leader Mitch McConnell in their leadership election. They held that yesterday. They held that Wednesday. It was the first time someone challenged McConnell in his 15 years leading the Senate Republicans, and he won the vote 37 to 10 to 1. Uh, according to Republican senators, uh, Rick Scott's gripe with McConnell was that McConnell didn't put forward a policy agenda ahead of the midterms. And McConnell also criticized Scott's policy plans that included raising taxes on lower and middle class Americans. Uh, Politicology listeners will remember when we talked about that insane hodgepodge of policy proposals uh, that he put forward ahead of the midterms. Um, According to Missouri Senator Josh Hawley, McConnell also criticized Rick Scott's management of the NRSC. Um, So Lucy, why don't you lead off on this one? What was your, what's your read on, on this challenge? Uh, And is McConnell losing his hold on the Republican caucus? I don't know how to answer that, but I do think that, we see in Mitch McConnell, it's like that meme, like, you're so close, buddy. You're so close, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I think Mitch McConnell definitely, uh, he, 
is definitely soon from the, we've talked about this before, but from the perspective of the Republican base, like Mitch McConnell is basically practically a never Trumper at this point, yeah. right? In yeah. their view. And He's I like think, an honorary never Trumper. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and when we talk more broadly about what's happening and what the direction of the Republican party is, I think it's, it's not that the Republican party gets reformed. And I think Mike has summed this up much more eloquently when talking about political forces writ large than I'm going to right here. But I think from the perspective of just sort of what the influencer class and elites so-called look like in this, it's actually just that the, the, the bucket of people who are considered good Republicans shrinks. And then from the perspective of the base, they're moving everyone else out of it, right? It's mm-hmm. not like you know whether or not people who are actually, say, never Trumpers actually perceive that or not. So I think that McConnell, for example, in his speech this week where he said, you know, I've been saying quality can't candidate quality matters and um, you can't be scary and you can't be these chaos agents. I think that ultimately McConnell probably does pull through this in part because they're still in the minority. So there's just a little less to do. Um, and because of that cadre of Republicans like the Susan Collins, Mitt Romney, Murkowski types of the world. But I don't, I, I do think that McConnell's golden age is behind him politically. I don't, I don't think that there's a, um, I don't think that there's a, a future McConnell ascendancy. And I think that his, his best days of leadership are, are behind him, not because he's become less shrewd, but just because the, the forces are against him. Yeah. Mike, you think that's right? You're nodding. I think that is right, but I do think listeners need to understand how consequential it is that there's a very public high-profile fight against the Republican leader of the Senate conference. Like, I I say that with a little bit of of laughing because it's just, it's a big, it's a really big deal. Like, this is not just a normal administrative, you know, moment where they're just, oh, yeah, oh, I'll run for leader. Like, I'll run for class president. this has never happened. No, this is, this is a direct threat and challenge to the leadership that has been in place for 15 years with a man who's had an iron grip on that conference. And for the past two weeks, it has been open warfare from Trump world to take out the old crow, right? To take out McConnell. It's like, go get him. Steve Miller and 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 the you know the 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 cast of crazies have all publicly been saying, let's go get him. You know, uh, Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, Josh Hawley, Rick Scott, the the loud guys in the caucus, the these the people always leaning into a potential presidential run have been the ones saying, let's not hold the vote. Let's wait for Herschel Walker because Herschel Walker is not with McConnell, by the way, which puts McConnell in this weird spot is he's got to win a race for a seat for a guy who's not going to vote for him Mm -hmm. for leader. So if you win, you lose. And if you lose, you lose, you lose. And that's just the tough spots to be in. Having said that, 37, I mean, he's still there. I mean, the guy's still got the numbers and he's not, I think Lucy's right. He's not going anywhere. But his best days, uh, you know, are behind him. And and as a kind of a, a a master of the Senate, when you never doubted McConnell's ability to deliver, you're kind of like looking at it going, dude, this is not a good look, man. Like, this is just not a good look on your legacy at this point. It's like you're having public spats with like crazy ex-staffers. And, and you can't put this to bed, like you can't use the lobbying core and the consulting infrastructure and the millions of dollars that you control and all the power you wield in Washington to shut this down. No, you can't is what you're realizing. And not only can't you, but there's now members of your own caucus forcing a public vote. And yeah, you beat it back 37-10, but having it is the sign. It's like that's just a direct slap in the face of the leader of your own caucus. And like I said, I can't underscore enough how significant that is in Washington, just how consequential. So I think, yeah, Lucy's right. He, he's going to make it, and I don't know how long he wants it. He'll probably have it as long as he wants it, but do you want it at this point? It's interesting that uh, there are a couple of folks who won election who are new Republican senators this year who are very, very much in the mold of McConnell. So, for example, Katie Britt, the new Republican senator um, from Alabama, uh, is a McConnell acolyte, kind of former Hill staffer type. Even someone like J.D. Vance, who has taken a certain posture, J.D. Vance, at the end of the day, 
is a is an institutional elitist guy cosplaying as MAGA. So JD Vance's ability to continue to do his shtick actually probably relies upon the stability of the Senate that you get from a Mitch McConnell. Like ultimately, if you get an anti-McConnell as leader, I think that starts to jeopardize the J.D. Vance shtick. So one of the things for even for some of these Republican senators who I think cosplay crazy pants, they actually still do, at the end of the day, want the stability of a Mitch McConnell. That's my take. Let's turn our attention to Ukraine for a moment with these leadership elections and the civil war between MAGA and establishment Republicans as the backdrop now, because we've talked a lot about the, um, you know, that aid for Ukraine is is at risk if, uh, uh, you know, depending on how these leadership elections go and the degree to which the MAGA wing can influence, um, can can steer the can steer the caucus uh, away from. U.S.'s position on Ukraine. On Tuesday, a missile strike killed two people in Polish territory. The leaders of Poland and NATO have said that the missile was likely fired by Ukrainian forces defending against a barrage of Russian strikes. In the immediate aftermath of the missile strike, especially when military intelligence couldn't confirm where the missile originated, there was a lot of concern and speculation all over the place about whether the strike could lead to nuclear war. Um, and then there's a piece that Ann Applebaum wrote about how the fear of nuclear war has shaped the response to the invasion of Ukraine. And here's a quote from that piece I wanted to read. Fear certainly explains why we in the West have given Ukraine some weapons, but not others. Why no airplanes? Why no advanced tanks? Because the White House, the German government, and other governments are afraid that one of those weapons would cross an invisible red line and inspire a nuclear retaliation by Russia. Fear also shapes tactics. Why don't the Ukrainians more often target the military bases or infrastructure on Russian territory that are being used to attack them? Because Ukraine's Western partners have asked its leaders not to do so for fear, again, of escalation. So Anne also wrote that the fear of nuclear threat causes us to treat non-nuclear acts as of mass violence and terror as if they are less important, less frightening, less deserving of a response simply because they aren't nuclear. So Mike, um, I, I, I want to I get your sort of gut check on, on, the, on the reaction to what happens um, with, again, with the backdrop of the posture that MAGA Republicans have taken toward Ukraine. Uh, and now the increasing influence that it looks like they're going to have on the caucus. How do you think that dynamic has impacted um, the the general public's understanding of the war and whether or not it has emboldened them in their in their anti-interventionist, uh, isolationist um, position? Well, to this point, surprisingly, even Republicans, the average Republican voter, if you're to believe polling, is that uh, you know still strongly stands behind Ukraine. It's it's the it, it is it is the irony of the fact that it remains the one legacy piece of Republicanism that has not broken is anti-Russian sentiment. Maybe it was all the Red Dawn movies we were fed in 1980 in the 80s, you know. But 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 for whatever reason, Republicans are still very anti-Russia for the moment. Uh, I think that will wane as the megaphone and the attacks on Zelensky and the attacks on corruption and the attacks on whatever they conjure up, um, you know, uh, come to to light. That stuff will take a toll. I mean, the big lie, you know. Remember early – I don't mean to get off topic, but early polling on, on the election stuff, Republicans were like, yeah, OK, we lost the election for the first 72 hours. Once once Fox News started going and the president started going, within 72 hours from that, you start to see the numbers turn. So I, I think we're probably going to see the same thing. I, I, I'm not – I don't feel great about where uh, American sentiment is with Ukraine because I think it should be unanimous. I mean this is our war. These people are fighting our war for us. 
Um, and there are going to be a lot, there's going to be a lot of backbiting in the Republican caucus, and it's going to start getting some traction because of this America first isolationism. It's, it's always been an appealing part of American society. It's always been there. It now just has a greater voice. And so I, but I, 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 and I look, I think Applebaum is exactly right. It's one of the challenges I've had with this war is even from the very beginning, and you and I discussed this before we left to go, to go to Ukraine was the fact that the cold warriors don't get what's happening that that what she's articulating is a warning about the cold war mentality which is you have to deal with the russians this way because nuclear annihilation is right around the corner and how do you deal with detente how do you deal with with mutually assured destruction all of these terms which we learned and worked with in the midst of the cold war i don't believe those rules apply anymore and i think that it is it is refreshing to have the Ann Applebaums and the Molly McHughes saying the Russians have always played this bullshit game with us and leveraged way more out of this than they ever should have call their bluff. And when we do, we, we find ourselves, we meaning the West find ourselves in a stronger strategic position. And I think that that's what we need to continue to do because we need to have a vision for what the post war paradigm looks like in a way that we did not in 1989 when the wall fell. And, and that lack of a vision is what is actually manifesting itself in 2022 is 30 years of visionless, driftless, aimless hegemony. And if you, if you look at the rest of the world, they're paying attention. China is now signaling the futures with the West. Like they're bailing on Russia. Like they're, they're watching this and saying, this is not good, right? Like the, uh, the, these people that we were flirting with and playing footsies with a year ago, earlier this year, not even a year ago, uh, um, it turning out the way that we thought it would. Good thing we stood on the, on the, on the, on the sidelines. So uh, sorry, to, sorry to throw so much into this, but but the Ukrainian piece is very central to what this next century is going to look like. It's it's literally in the, it is literally the central place where the intersection of the post Cold War and the new digital age are meeting, and the geopolitical structure is being un, it's unfolding as we're looking at it. And the rise of isolationism, the return of isolationism, isolationism in the Republican caucus is a concern because it can move American sentiment. But I'm also confident that if the Ukrainians come out of, of the winter in as strong a position or even stronger, then I think it portends very, very well for the end of, of, of this conflict, at least a kinetic conflict. And I think Putin is in a dramatically weakened position. Speaking of uh, the winter and our friend Molly McHugh, I was just texting with her this morning uh, before we recorded and she's made it out of Ukraine. Um, it got a little dicey there at the last minute because she was still in country when this happened. Uh, she's out now uh, and on her way and she'll be on her way back soon. She sent me a picture of her handing, literally handing over the gear that we helped raise money for for the uh, for the Ukrainians, the Stratcom. Uh, you did that politicology. So as we talk about winter coming, um, you were a part of of helping to supply uh, some much needed winter gear and coats and stuff to some Ukrainians who are now being bombarded daily by the Russians taking out infrastructure like power and and running water, uh, even in Kiev and. Uh, um, so Molly, wherever you are, get back home safely. We miss you. This week, uh, Lucy and also wrote a piece about how Russian imperialism is the source of Russian autocracy and how some of the Russians in exile are now articulating a future of Russia that could be different, that it could be a nation state and not an empire. And in that piece, she wrote, the country's future will be shaped not by mystical laws of history, but by how its leaders and citizens absorb and interpret the tragedy of this shocking, brutal, unnecessary war. Well, I want to know what you think about the danger of people relying on the mystical laws of history to determine the future and what happens when we lose sight of how decisions can impact overturning autocracy like in Russia or protecting democracy like we've seen here. Yeah, I think that when we talk about how we orient around Russia, around other players globally, I think that part of, and, and I think this is part of what Mike is alluding to, 
part of the problem that we seem to run into is that we are we are conflating questions of whether or not we should or should not pursue isolationism as though the discussion around isolationism is the same as the discussion around imperialism right that 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 those would be the two that those would be the same uh and and so it's then that and, and bear with me here cuz i'm thinking about this as we talk about it that problem which it's easy to see how we got there right there were there were veins of that <laughs> a long time ago but the the uh uh bush era and the war in iraq and afghanistan that era certainly made I think made that culture, right? Made some of what we're seeing now. On the other hand, when we when we get oriented that way, it's very easy to lose sight of the real stories of human atrocities or the idea, very American notions of of people being able to um to determine their own fates and live freely uh, in a way that is really anti-American, right? So in Russia, for example, we've we've lost sight of this a little bit, but literally this week there's been news that Navalny, who is arguably the the leading anti-Putin foe and has now been, I mean, how long has he been in prison? Years now at this point, has been once again transferred to a tiny one-man cell and is in solitary confinement again, right? We're losing sight of these stories of of dissidents, Russian dissidents, I think, um, that that I think we we have to get away from that. Um and I think that it's it's also aside from just the the human element of this, there's this other problem, which is that isolationism, even once you tease out that isolationism and imperialism, it's not, they're not in contrast, right? You're not like either an isolationist or an imperialist. It it doesn't that kind of binary. I think the the MAGA wing of the Republican Party wants all of us to operate in that kind of binary. But that kind of binary doesn't work in an era of globalism. And look, we actually all really love globalism. It means we get to interact with our economy in ways that really benefit us. It's really optimized. It's There are so many aspects of this era where it's like, it's never been better, right? And so these are, I think I'm, I'm sounding a little bit all over the place, but I think that some of this is cannot be examined in a vacuum, like, uh, in a, in a, in a news cycle, right? The, those news cycle pieces are the lenses by which we, we can, make those examinations, but they, it is, I think this is so much deeper. And I I also want to say that Mike's comment on China is making me think of something, which is that China is pro-China and like very Machiavellian in as a regime. And I was just thinking about what strange bedfellows, the idea that China, who is also the boogeyman of the right, that th- this weird, all these weird cultural forces whereby maybe China would be buddies with Russia, but but the American penchant for Russia is occurring in 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 the same breath uh, as this very ugly populist era and and pop, sort of populism gone nuts, and we see that in Western in Western Europe as well. And what a strange moment of strange bedfellows that would be of a Chinese support for Russia, sort of like a tag team with American MAGA populists and how China itself is so like populism, that would really not be good for China. (laughs) Those are (laughs) cultural forces China would not like to see come into its borders. Um, Anyway, that's apropos I think we're of, gonna see a, of a threat gonna see a, of mics. A, a lot of strange bedfellows because of, because of this sort of un, unraveling, unfolding world order. Um, and and ends the same piece, imploring readers not to uh, quote concede to Putin the right to define what it means to be Russian. He doesn't have that power. And so, with Donald Trump launching his campaign this week, just to bring it full circle, I, I think it's um, you know I think it's important to think 
about how he tries to define what America is and what it means to be American and how important those examples will be for other countries who are combating authoritarianism because that is that really is what he and the entire MAGA movement want. They want to redefine what it is, what America is, what we mean to the rest of the world and what it means to be an American. And those are ideas uh, that, Mike, I think you said this earlier, we're going to be fighting for those ideas, to define those ideas for I mean, the rest of our lives, really. Um, do, you want to, do you have any other thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I'll say it again. I, I think it's a little controversial, but we are we are blessed and honored to be fighting for that. We, I, I believe that the character of people and nations are forged through struggle, and only when you're fighting for it can you understand it and value it and see it and breathe it and and feel the energy of it. It was why I wanted to go to Ukraine in May, is I wanted to see people forging their national character, and you could feel it. Like on the ground, these people are ready to die for their country. And I, I wanted to go see it in large part because, look, I was I, I turned 18 in, in 1980, 89 when the wall fell. Like my entire adult life has been defined by the post-World War II era. I think that that era functionally ended in February of this year when Russia invaded Ukraine. And that post-Cold War era was about American hegemony and, and, and we were lost. America got lost when it won because it didn't have anything to drive and define its existence. We had spent so many years becoming who we were by defining what we were against that we really had no idea what we were for. And when you're in that environment as a, as a, as a person, as an individual, or as a nation, and as a country, it's very easy to get off track. And I think that's a big part of what has happened to us and brought us to this moment. And we have the, the struggle with what we're going through against Trumpism is truly a gift because it allow, it's allowing us to fight again to remind us who we are and what we're for. And I've always said we're going to win, but it's going to be a tough struggle if we're lucky because the tougher the struggle, the longer the legacy of our national character will be in, it, in its continuance. And that's what we need to – we need to be worthy of the moment. We need to be looking for that. And that's what Applebaum is saying too is the, the Russian people have it within them to change their narrative, to change their story. The, the, the Russian idea of imperialism goes back to Peter the Great. The history of the country, it's not, it's not just Vladimir Putin came to power and he's a bad dude. This is centuries and centuries and centuries of, of, of nation building and character building with who the Russian people are. And I believe they can change, but it only happens through struggle. Usually, unfortunately, in that situation, bloody struggle. That's where they're at. And so Russia is going to be at a crossroads in the next six months, as is America, as we define our role in the world. And this is, like I said, this this moment is going to define the geopolitical structure for this century. And a lot of pieces are moving really, 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 really fast. Part of that moment is going to have to be being willing to feel the pain at home in that struggle. Mm -hmm. And I think a, a, a real weakness in America is that we are often engaged in conflicts that are very far away where it's hard to see the ramifications of the outcomes. It is different to be experiencing the Ukraine-Russia war in Michigan than it is in Berlin for obvious reasons. And Americans often are able to be insulated, not only able to be insulated from the hardships of these struggles, but also want to be insulated. And we have to have tough conversations about the fact that you cannot just infinitely rearrange the chessboard to optimize gas prices, right? At some point, you have to be able to take a stand collectively. I don't just mean leaders, but collectively as voters and how we respond to these leaders to say, all right, we're not going to, just because our oil supply that is tied to the Russians is a bit in flux right now, that doesn't mean that we turn around and strike a deal with Venezuela, right? I mean, there are these, there are these downstream consequences where part of getting through the era that we're in, both in how we relate to the world abroad, to, but also 
to our lives at home requires, I think, a willingness to to grit your mm. teeth and and bear it. Can, can I yeah, say one thing so, to that? Because I think it's exactly yeah. right. And I, I want to underscore yeah. really quickly. That's why I think I felt relief about the midterms is you saw a massive amount of people who believe that the country is headed in the wrong direction, that are suffering with inflation, that are extremely concerned about the direction of this country and this nation, but showed up to vote against even Republicans, especially Republicans, showed up to vote against their own party. That is, and, and frankly, mm-hmm. that's that's the fight and the sacrifice you want. You don't want it artillery shells hitting Chicago. Okay, you don't you don't want that. I'm not I'm not suggesting you do, but America is in an internal struggle right now, which is very painful and very traumatic for us as a nation. We are in a fight, and the fact that people are showing up and saying, "I'm going to vote against my own policy beliefs because I care that much about the process," that's the hope. That's what is needed. That's literally what is required of democracy at this moment. And it's why I'm kind of pushing back on this narrative. It was young people that saved us and it was, you know, people of color that saved us. Yeah, that was a part of the coalition. But the most important part of the coalition was people literally showing up in record numbers and saying, I care about the process more than I care about my own beliefs and my own world vision. That's the hope of America. That's what democracy is, people. And congratulations to all of you that did that. I wish there were more, but there were enough. That's the struggle that I'm talking about is when people have to say, you know what? It's not about me. I care more about the country and the process than what I want to get out of this. That is literally, literally the necessary component of democracy. I don't get all of what I want. I don't get all of my demands. And I'll tear it down and say the election was was false and and continue with the, the, the my you know the, the dear leader to get my worldview imposed on you. It's saying I don't agree with any of this, but the process matters more than anything. That's democracy. And that's what won Tuesday night. Now that we're up to speed on some of the biggest stories this week, uh, let's talk about what we're watching. Lucy, what do you got? Well, when I look back on last week's election, one of the things I'm thinking about, let me zoom out. I obviously, as I said at the top of this episode, love to burn the Republican Party to the ground. That doesn't mean that I think it would be healthy for us to live in a system where we only, this is an, it's unhealthy. The Republican Party being what it is makes the Democratic Party unhealthy. We can't sustain a one-party system. We also can't reasonably expect, we don't want that, that would be terrible. We also can't reasonably expect for voters to, who maybe hold different viewpoints to every cycle, come out and vote for the party that doesn't advance their policy goals because they're, you know, because like the house is on fire. It's terrible that more than 60% of Americans say that they don't feel great about either party and that they're just this, we have this exhausted majority. So I'm really interested in actual steps being taken and successes at changing the structure of our democracy. And so one of the things that I've been watching is where did voters go to the ballot and say, we want something different. So watching uh, all the places that ranked choice voting was passed, it was passed municipally in a bunch of places, was passed in Seattle, Ojai, Fort Collins, Colorado, Evansville, Illinois, Portland, Maine, Portland, Oregon, a county in Oregon. In your home state of Nevada, this is kind of a nightmare scenario, but they, because of what they have to do next, but they passed final five voting. Um, it's a nightmare because it has to be readopted in in 2024, but it basically would say, look, we're doing away with partisan primaries. Let's go to an open top five primary election and then a ranked choice uh, general election. So I'm really excited about democracy reform getting on the ballot. It is no surprise that it's very hard to get elected officials to pass these reforms legislatively, go figure, because they are the winners of entrenched party power. So I'm so excited that we're seeing some momentum. I feel like this is more momentum that we've seen for these reforms than any cycle before. And we're already seeing the fruits of some of this in in places. I mean, RIP Sarah Palin's 
political career, right? She lost twice <laughs> this year because of ranked choice voting, right? Because yeah. of Alaska yeah. system. So we're totally. already seeing this. Ditto in Maine, Janet Mills. She wiped the floor with Paula Page. Paula Page was governor not too long ago. He's the the most recent Republican governor in the state. So it's really exciting, and and that's what I'm watching. It's a it's a real bright spot to to think about how we can gather up momentum for some of these changes yeah. to make. I think our democracy look more like what our founders would have envisioned. They thought that parties were one of the greatest threats to our democracy, and these reforms address that. And it'll make parties better too if we could get these on a large scale. And it'll make candidates better. And yes. I and I think I think. Uh, I, Mike, you and I were talking about this, the Alaska race, and I, I think it will emerge when this is all done and all the votes are counted and tabulated as as a as a as one of the most prominent um, examples of how ranked choice voting can mitigate extremes uh, or, or uh, extreme candidates. Um, so I, I can't wait until we start talking about that example more. I think it needs to get a lot more coverage than it is so far. But uh, Mike, what do you got under the radar? Over the radar. Yeah, Wherever I, well, I, I too am kind of like looking as, as the dust settles on the election to kind of find some of the through lines. Usually by now we've got a pretty good sense of sort of what happened and what didn't happen. This was a very peculiar election in that it, there's a lot going on in a lot of different places. Uh, there was a red wave in Florida. There was a blue wave in Michigan. There was very high turnout in some states. There was California had very low turnout. Gavin Newsom wins by a much smaller margin than anybody expects. There's this continued uh, shrinking of margins in Hispanic congressional districts. So Hispanics are continuing to move to the right. Like none of this has any sort of cohesiveness to it, except for the fact that each state kind of had its own regional flavor and each its own regional dynamics that was that was driving it and i i i can't help but believe that that's healthy and hopeful because you know the the trend line again for the past 30 years has been this towards this hyper partisanization um you're going to have you know or at least we saw some some significant breaks and differences between the outcomes of gubernatorial contests in terms of uh, votes totals and Senate races in places like Pennsylvania and Ohio, um, I, it, I, that tells me that the, the voter is becoming extremely discerning. More and more voters are really tuning in and saying, let me be strategic about the way I'm voting and really think about what this means for the country. And I think that that's a good thing. Um, I, I'm, I'm hopeful for that. Um, so that's in the lack of finding through lines, you kind of find the through line. I just want to take a quick moment to um, to, to to mark a pretty monumental uh, um, achievement, uh, which is that um, the Senate passed the repeal of DOMA effectively yesterday. It's not the done deal; it will be done soon. Um, but this is this is enormous. Yeah, it is not a it, it is not sort of guaranteed marriage equality everywhere at the federal level. What it is is now is if you get if you get gay married in one state and you go to a state where you're not allowed to do that, they have to honor it. They have to honor your marriage, um, and it essentially it, it leaves it up to individual states to um, to not allow uh, people to get married in that state. But f- effectively, this is um, this this is marriage equality um, nationwide and 12 Republican senators voted for it. And that's what is so remarkable about how much, how much things have changed since then. Um, Those 12 Republican senators, Collins, Portman, Tillis, Lisa Murkowski, Dan Sullivan of Alaska, Cynthia Loomis, Mitt Romney, Richard Burr, Roy Blunt, Joni Ernst, Todd Young, Shelley Morcapito. I just, uh, it's also worth noting um, that the entire Utah delegation, um, except for one Mike Lee, voted in favor of repealing the Defense of Marriage Act. And so I, um, you know, I was having dinner with Lene. We were talking about this, our friend Lene Erickson at Third Way. And um, we should send a, a big round of applause and a shout out to her and every other person who has been working for this for how, 13, how many ever years it's been going. Um, huge, huge, huge uh, achievement. So 
Uh, we'll probably hear more headlines about this after the final passage. I think they're trying to get it done this week, uh, but we'll see. It's a means a lot to me. So thank you to everybody who worked on this. Okay, gang, before we flip over to Politicology Plus, where we're going to discuss America's guru problem, where can everybody find you on the internet, Lucy? Are you still on Twitter? Yeah, I'm still still hanging by a thread on Twitter, (laughs) at Lucy M. Caldwell. I'm trying to to figure out how to use services like Mastodon, but for now, Twitter is where I'm hanging my hat. (laughs) I haven't migrated anywhere yet. I'm still on Twitter, but I don't tweet very much. You can follow me there, at Ron Steslow. Mostly I DM with people, but 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 yes. I don't really like, I don't know. Uh maybe maybe Mastodon will be the next thing. Who knows? Mike, where are you? I am on Mastodon at at Mike Madrid at C dot I am. Yeah. Okay. Maybe I'll come meet come you. Come visit me. It's that the water's well, warm. Mastodon. Yeah, Hang on. I don't even I don't even know how Mastodon works. I don't even know what it's it very is. Very confusing. Yet. But if we all get on it, it'll become a better service. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, folks, talk to you next week. (laughs) Thank you to everybody at home and on the go for listening today. If you haven't already, head over to the Apple Podcast app and rate us five stars and leave us a review there. This helps us rise in the algorithm ranking so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have any thoughts you want to share with us about anything we've talked about today, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And we love reading everything you send us, even if we don't have time to respond to it all, whether it's an episode idea, guest recommendation, or a simple note about how the show has impacted you or who you shared it with. We love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow, and I'll see you in the next episode.